morning. I can't tell you what a strange feeling this is to be here. It's a good one. I talked to my wife and kids last night. They're back home, Appleton, about 30 miles south of Green Bay, uh, the home of the soon-to-be world champion Green Bay Packers. I talked to someone this morning. I said, it was a great game yesterday. And they said, oh, yeah. I said, yeah, how about those Packers? I said, oh, I can't stand them. <laughs> so I know where I'm at here, I guess. But I am, I am humbled to be here and uh, humbled by the cards that I've received and by the prayers and by the love that's been shown to myself and my family. It blows my mind, God's grace uh, in allowing us, allowing me to be part of this plan. So it's good to be here. Look forward to what the future has. You know, I was told... Too, that, that, Mark, when you go to speak, especially the first few times, it's really totally irrelevant what you speak on because nobody's really listening to, to God. They're not really looking to see how their life intersects with God's Word. They're evaluating you. So don't waste a good message, is what I was told. So we're looking at mediocrity today, okay? That's, a, that's the plan. Uh, hopefully not, not really. I'll try to always do my best. Um, but what we're looking at this morning and starting for this next few, few weeks is perhaps the most important uh, series that we could do. Uh, and I don't say that, that glibly. You know, A.W. Tozer said that the most important thing about you is what you believe about God. And that's an amazing statement. He didn't say the most important thing about you is the breaks that you've received in life or your education or your intelligence or what family you were born into. It doesn't even say the most important thing about you is who loves you and who you love. No, no. The most important thing about you is what you believe about God. Because that, above everything else, is going to be what determines how you live your life, how you see your life. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to take off our shoes and get real close to sacred holy ground, looking at this subject that is just uh, incomprehensible in many ways. But we're going to try to scratch the surface of infinite, of eternal, if we can do that. Uh, amazing, amazing stuff. You know, the Newsweek, June 28th, this past year, had an article, You and Whose Army? It talks, it's trying to compare the power of the United States of America with other nations. And you'll be happy to know that the United States has more ground troops than any other nation in the world, except one. Can you guess what that is? That's China, right, right. China, we know this one. But other than that, we are number one on all of the other things that they have listed here as far as military, as far as defense spending. This is 2008 figures. Iran spent $9.6 billion on their defense in 2008. Meanwhile, Israel spent $15 billion. Russia spent $40.5 billion. In 2008, China spent $60.2 billion. Number two on the list was France with $67.2 billion. Now, can you imagine what does the United States spend on defense in 2008? Number, number two on the list was France at $67 billion. United States, $700 billion in defense. It says that the U.S. has 57 nuclear-powered attack and cruise missile submarines, more than the rest of the world combined. The U.S. Army was allotted $1.9 billion for ammunition alone more than the total defense spending of Bahrain, Lebanon, and El Salvador combined. The Army's National Guard is the same size as France's entire armed forces. It goes on and on. No question about it. Militarily speaking, the United States is the most powerful nation in the world. And when you combine that with where the United States is economically, 
and all the nations in the world that we undergird and that we hold together their infrastructures with our aid and how the United States is able to influence all of the world's economies. No question about it. The United States is the most powerful nation in the world today. You know, my dad was a, a tank sergeant, so my home was a very patriotic type of home. But if history teaches us anything, it lets us know that nobody stays on the top of the heap for forever. Right? Empires come and empires go. That's the way it is. And the nation that was on the top longer than any other was the Roman Empire. And they, of course, they, they persecuted Christianity at first, but then they embraced Christianity. And they propagated Christianity. Matter of fact, they made it a law that if you weren't a Christian, you were in trouble. It was the only faith that they would endorse. And so the state, Rome, most powerful nation, and the church kind of got married. And they got enmeshed. And it was hard to tell the difference between the two. It was the Roman church. And it was the only church that was out there. So when the Visigoths sacked Rome in 410, what happened is Rome is done. The Christians went into a faith crisis. Because they were tied. The church and the state were the same. And they took their power from Rome. And now Rome was no more. So the Christians were going, what's the deal? What about our faith? What about the church? And St. Augustine at that point wrote his most famous treatise, The City of God, where he was trying to comfort these Christians and say, you know, we appreciate the state, but our citizenship is in heaven. And, and, And we're not to rely on the power of the state, but on the power of our God. Now, Follow along with me on this thing. But Jesus at one point said it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. And he's not dissing riches. But what he was saying is just a principle of life that if you have a lot of something, then you might not think you need anything else. If you've got a lot of riches, you might not really think you need God's riches. Maybe we could rewrite the verse. It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a powerful man to get into heaven. If you have lots of power, you might think you really don't need God's power. I mean, is God really going to protect us? The Marines are going to protect us. If God fails, we've got nuclear bombs. We can take care of ourselves. Now, this is why it's a precarious situation for us, because we're living in the most powerful nation in the world. It's easy for us to put our kids to sleep at night based on the security that we have in the power of America. It's easy for us to enjoy the standard of living that we do based on the power of America. And sometimes, God is good and all, but we're pretty safe even if he's got a different plan. It's easy for Christians to get into that kind of mindset. And I believe that Scripture points out that the, the, the... Effective living is going to be dependent upon your understanding of and adherence to God's power. Here's the big idea for today. Let's see it on the screen. Living in the light of God's power leads to faith, not fear. I need you to say that with me, okay? Living in the light of God's power leads to faith, not fear. One more time. Living in the light of God's power leads to faith, not fear. Again. Living in the light of God's power leads to faith, not fear. One more time. Living in the light of God's power leads to faith, not fear. Again. Living in the light of God's power leads to faith, not fear. We've got incredible short-term memories, don't we? This is how we get through college, isn't it? Yes, this is our short-term memories. But will we be able to say this at the end of the day? Because this is the principle that we find over 
and over and over in Scripture. Now, let me throw a disclaimer on this from the very beginning. God's power is infinite, which means God doesn't just have lots of power. He doesn't have more power than anybody you know. He doesn't have more power than you know, 10,000 times to the oomph degree. Those are big, big terms, but they're limited terms. God's power is infinite, which means this. You and I can never fully comprehend and understand God's power. This is a great series we're doing, right? We're starting off letting you know the most important thing to know is God's power, but you can never really know it. Well, okay, that's encouraging. Uh, but, 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 but the important thing about this, I think, is even if you've been walking with the Lord 50 years and you really understand God, you don't know Him as well as you can know Him. You can grow in that understanding of who He is. And it's imperative that you do. Uh, the second thing is, is we might ask ourselves, well, what is the power of God? Well, basically, the power of God is the fact that God can do anything He wants to do. I cannot. I'm somewhat limited. I, a lot of different ways. I can't be in many places at once, though I'd like to. I'd like to stop the clock. I'd like to fly. I think that would be fun. I cannot do whatever I want to do. I have to respond to my situations the best I can. God can do anything He wants to do. That's His power. And when we start talking about the power of God, we say, well, how can we see it? Well, the psalmist lets us know in Psalm 19.1 that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. So if you look up, you can see the glory of God. Now, if you look up, what do you see? Well, if you're in Erie, you see clouds and snow. All the time you see clouds and snow. That's just what you all have here, I guess. But if you're in Southern California, you would see the sun. Yes, I think that's still there. The sun is about 93 million miles away. It takes eight minutes for its light to get to us. The sun is a huge thing. It comprises 99% of the mass of our solar system. If you were to line up Earths, you'd have to line up 121 Earths side by side to reach its width. You could put 1.3 million Earths inside the sun. Remember when you were a kid? And you would draw the sun. You always put a smiley face on the sun. You know? you know, there's nothing smiley about the sun. It is a violent, ferocious ball of nuclear explosions that gets its power from nuclear fusion. So constantly there are, there are nuclear explosions going off on the sun. The surface of the sun is 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. I'm told, though I don't know this for sure, but I'm told that the core of the sun, 23 million degrees Fahrenheit. I didn't know you could get that out. The, the, the sun is, is, is massive. And my understanding of physics, though I'm not a physicist, is that the thing that produces has to be at least as big or bigger than that which it produces. Genesis tells me that God made the sun. Therefore, God is at least as big as the sun. The sun resides in our, our solar system. How big is our solar system? If you were to take a bowling ball, eight-inch diameter, let's pretend like that's the sun, and you were to dig out the snow on the other side of this prayer tower and push it right up against the prayer tower, right up against the wall, you'd have to walk out in the parking lot about a quarter of the way and put down a peppercorn. Peppercorn is the earth. Now, you can find North America, find the United States, find Pennsylvania, find your street, find your house, find you on that peppercorn. That's, that's how big you are. Then start walking past the, the food pantry house. Keep wash, walking about one football field this side of the first intersection with the light. I forget what that's called. Uh, there's a light that way with a gas station. Um, 
One football field this way, put down a pinhead, that is Pluto. And that's our, our solar system. The nearest sun to our sun, if our, if our solar system is the size of a quarter, the nearest sun to our sun, nearest star to ours, is one quarter and two soccer fields away. I mean, a space is a great word for what's out there. No, it's nothing, it's space. You know, as a kid, I thought if I got out there, I'd be ditching asteroids and comets and stars and whoa. But there's just a lot of nothing out there. It's a massive, massive place. Now, Louis Giglio says that our, our solar system is just our cul-de-sac in the neighborhood. By the way, and this is kind of off record, uh, Louis Giglio has a DVD out called Indescribable. It's a fantastic DVD. It's not music. It's really him looking in astronomy, seeing the glory of God. I'd recommend that you get it. You can get it at Amazon, whatever else. Louis Giglio, Indescribable. The neighborhood we live in, though, is the Milky Way galaxy. You know, we've never been able to get outside of our galaxy to look back at it and see what it looks like. But astronomers say that if we were able to, it would probably look like this. Now, you don't want to live in the core, the center of it, not a good place. You don't want to even live in those spiral arms. That's not a good place. But our planetary system, our solar system, with our sun, which is just one of billions of suns in our galaxy, you can't even see it. It's so small on the map. Now, astronomers let us know that there are perhaps billions of galaxies out there. If it makes you, you, you stop. And, and, and remember, you're just a little thing on the peppercorn. It makes you stop. And see, if, if God is bigger than that, how big is God? Isaiah lets us know. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. And then Psalms. When, this is before Hubble, right? When I consider your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? The power of God is, is seen. Scripture lets us know in the heavens. And we might hear this and think about this and have our minds bent a little bit and say, well, that's you know, fascinating stuff and all. However, tomorrow I go in the back to the marketplace. I go back to my, my home this afternoon. I go back to my situation and I'm just not sure, other than you know, you know, arming me with some stuff for a trivia contest here, I'm not so sure I have anything to make an impact on my life. How does this work with me? That's a great question. Daniel chapter 3. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 3. Because we'll see how an understanding of the power of God allows you to face life and live life based on faith, not fear. Daniel 3, just give you a background, 604, King B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, over the most powerful nation in the world at that time, Babylon, came knocking on the door of Jerusalem. And the king of Jerusalem was either a wimp or maybe he was just a realist. He opened the door and he said, Nebuchadnezzar, what do you want? Just let me know. Well, your, your wish is my command. And Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, I want your, your national honor roll. I want you to empty your universities. I want your, your R&D department. I want your most sophisticated, most intelligent, most creative people. I need them now. And so the king gave them all to Nebuchadnezzar. And in that group, there were three guys, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And Nebuchadnezzar took them back to Babylon, trained them up, changed their names, because their names, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, all reflect 
Yahweh, Israel's God. The king didn't like that, so he changed their names to Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego, all reflective of Babylonian gods, Marduk. He says, okay, this is what you need to do. So, so they were raised up in the Babylonian culture and language, and they rose to prominence in the Babylonian culture. They, they got posts of significance there. That takes us to chapter 3 of Daniel. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now, you need to understand what's going through Neb's mind here. He wasn't bored. He didn't say, I've conquered everybody there is to conquer. What do I do? I know. I'll come up with a new religion. Now, this is not what he's thinking. This has very little to do with religion, actually, and has a lot to do with politics. Because what, what Nebuchadnezzar did to Israel, he also did to all the other nations that he clobbered. He took their brightest and best, and he brought them to Babylon, and he trained them up, and then he put them over major areas of his empire. And so Babylon was being run by all of these foreigners. And so Nebuchadnezzar calls them all into the room, and he says, Now listen. I know you all might be a little upset at me. I mean, you know, maybe you're upset still because I killed your families and trashed your homes and all things. I can understand that. However, I need to know if our nation's going to continue on. If you're going to continue on in the post you're in, I need to know that you're dedicated first and foremost to me and that everything else is secondary. I need to know that, that you are loyal to me alone. That's, and so what I'm going to do, we've got a new national anthem going, and when the band starts to play it, I want all you guys to, to pledge allegiance to the empire. No, no, no. I want you to worship the empire. And we'll check out your loyalty. This is what it was about, checking out their loyalty. Well, this throws Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego into a tailspin, doesn't it? I mean, they know they're Jewish. They know that, that, that God gave them a law, and of the first, very first commandment was, don't worship anybody else but me. And so they're, 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 they're thinking, did we hear him right? Did we, is this what he said? And, and, and he says, yeah, and the band plays, do it. And all of a sudden, the band strikes up. They don't have time to ask anyone else. They don't have time to look for counsel. They don't have time to pray about it for a while. They don't have time to think what they can do. You know how sometimes when we know a bad situation is coming, we can avoid it. We can arrange our schedule to get out of it somehow. They could not do this. The band takes off, and everyone around them falls. And they're going, ah, what do I do? What would you do? Ah, would you excuse yourself in the bathroom, maybe? Ah, I'll be back in a few minutes. I've got to get out of here. Or would you, maybe you'd drop your keys, so you've got to look for them, right? You've got to look for your keys. You're looking at the band done yet? No, they're playing another verse. Oh, another verse. And, and you're trying to figure out, now what do you do? How can you get out of this one gracefully? Well, well it's, not, I mean, it's not just what might you do. You know, sometimes we look at this and we go, Man, it stinks to be those guys. I'm glad it wasn't me. But actually, and tell me if I'm wrong, often this happens to us today. Going through life, life is okay, and suddenly we're blindsided. 
suddenly some, something comes right in front of us. We don't have time to think about it, to pray up, to, to call somebody. We have, to, we have to act right now, either for him or against him. Our faith is put on the line right there, and we know if we stand up for Christ, there's going to be some consequences. If we do the right thing, it's not going to go over very well. What do you do? Try to find the bathroom, you drop the keys. We try to figure out some way to get out of it so I don't have to make a stand. Well, somehow, these guys stood up. Now, I don't know if they're in the back of the line. I don't know what's going on, but Nebuchadnezzar didn't see them. But they've got some political enemies. And so as soon as this is done, they run to Nebuchadnezzar and they say, Hey, Nebuchadnezzar, these guys, they've got, they got three guys running your empire. Who, who, they're, they're not claiming loyalty to you. And so... Nebuchadnezzar gets upset, verse 13. It says, furious with rage. Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, have you ever been by somebody who's furious with rage? I mean, the, the, the author wants you and I to know what's going on in Neb's heart here. He's not just furious. He's not just raging. He's furious with rage. Nebuchadnezzar probably has never in his whole life been defined this way. He's jumping up and down. He's got the veins popping out of his neck. He's turning red. He's spitting in their face. He's talking to them. He's cussing them out. And Babylonian, Ugaritic, whatever they're speaking, he's calling them names and their mama names and how dare you. And so when you get down and it says, it says, is it true, Shadrach? This is how we usually read this, isn't it? Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? You know, he's not. He is. He's... He's, I can't believe it. This is true. He's grabbing him by the neck. I can't. He's upset. He is really upset. Now, have you ever been called, maybe just in picture if you have not, into your, your boss's office and your boss is furious with rage at you because he thinks you defied him? And maybe he's got a reputation, like Nebuchadnezzar he had a reputation. He'd fire people on a dime. He'd kill them. He killed a lot more people than he, than he didn't, it seems. And here's this guy that you've made very upset, who's got your life in, in his hands, and he's, he's angry and cussing and bent out of shape at you. This is not a good place for these guys to be in. What do you do? And so they, they, they went on. Well, verse 15, and he says this, Now when you hear, he gives him a second chance, right? When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hands? Now, we recognize that last question is rhetorical. He's really not looking for an answer. But I don't know if Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego can't figure out it's rhetorical. They decide to answer him, right? So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. Now, you, what? And you can imagine, they're saying, they're saying no, 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 you did ask the question. What God is able? I, I've got one. Uh, because, see, see, my God, he created the stars. He created you. He created me. And, and you know what? He, he single-handedly took out all of Egypt. I mean, none of us raised a sword, and he clobbered all of Egypt, and we left, stealing their gold along the way. And, and now I wasn't there, but I'm told the people came up to the Red Sea, and the Red Sea just went, 
and we walked on through. And then when they tried to come through, it came back down on them. And so you're asking me what God is able to do? This? <laughs> My God, your furnace is big enough, but it doesn't compare to the Red Sea. So I'm telling you, I know a God that can, can, your furnace is nothing. Now, how do you think Nebuchadnezzar responds to this? Oh, thank you. I did. No, that's not how he responds. Verse 19, it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. I love that line. Because he didn't have a good attitude towards them in the first place, did he? He was furious with rage before. You didn't think it could get any worse. Oh, no, it gets worse. He becomes even more furious. He can't even talk to them. He doesn't talk to them anymore. He orders the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. It's the furnace is redlining. And commanded some of the strongest soldiers, didn't need the strongest, but he commanded the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. He's moved his throne down into the furnace room just to listen to these guys scream. And so when the doors open and these big warrior Babylonians are getting ready to throw them in, it says that the heat is so powerful that those guys perish, the warriors perish. And Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego fall in. And... Then the king, verse 24, Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, O king. And he said, Look, I see four men walking around the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the God. Now these guys handled a very scary situation. And they responded not with fear, but with faith. And I want to back up for just a second. Because they knew of God's power. It's something that we need to know. But they knew something else. And this is usually where Christianity, where we get, we get lost. Verses 16 and 17, where they said, Our God is able to deliver us from, from this, not a problem. But then... Verse 18, they say something. Probably the most profound declaration of faith in the entire Bible. They say, but even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up, even if he does not. They knew God is powerful. But God's power does not mean that he has to act, it, act with it on my agenda. Simply because God does not do things the way I'd do them if I was God does not mean he's not powerful. I knew a guy several, many, many years ago when his son was born, his son was born with a handicap. And I remember that the man had good 16 and 17, verses 16 and 17 theology. God is powerful. So, so he told, told me personally, he said, don't worry, God is going to heal him. And then as this boy grew, the dad continued to tell the boy, don't worry, God is going to heal you. And on this man's deathbed, remember his handicapped adult son was there, and the dad was telling him, I'm telling you, God will heal you. He had a good 16 and 17 theology, but his theology had no room for verse 18. But even... If he does not, it's imperative for us, y'all, that our theology embrace 16 through 18. That we understand the power of God, but we understand that, that God's power is tied to his wisdom, which is beyond us. 
And sometimes he doesn't respond the way we do, and that doesn't diminish his power. It's, it's common, isn't it, for folk, Christians to try to cut deals with God? God, if you get me out of this jam, then I, I'll go to church forever. Lord, if you could just, just help my spouse not to find out about this one, I, I, will, I will serve. I will serve in, in, in the nursery, man, as long as for, for the end. If you could just help me to not be pregnant, God, then I will do this. If you could just help me to get a job, God, then I, if you could just give me a spouse, if you could change my spouse's heart because they're so hard to live with, then, Lord, I, I will honor them and I'll be the best spouse back. And if you can just heal me because I don't like being sick, if you could heal me, then I will worship you all the days of my life. We cut these deals with God. That's 16 and 17 theology. It's a faulty theology. Full orb theology would say, God, I really want to be healed. Could, could you do that for me? But even if you do not, I want you to know that I'm not going to worship you any less. And God, would you give me a spouse? Because I'm just tired of being lonely. I mean, it's, I want a godly one. But even if you do not, I'm not bowing down how the world's gods of illicit relationships. I'm not. I just want you to know that, God. And God, would you, would you help me out financially? But even if you don't, I'm going to continue to be generous as much as I can. I'm going to honor you with that which you've given me. God, will you fix this trouble I'm in? But even if you don't, that's not going to diminish my worship of you one iota. Now, that's a theology you can ride through life. If you just hold on to 16 and 17, you're going to end up in either denial or you're going to end up walking away from the Lord because sooner or later, His plan is going to deviate from yours. And you're going to be there knowing that if I had the power, but God's got it and He's not using it this way for me now, and you and the Lord will part company. It's imperative that you hold on to 18. But even if you do not. And then notice when verse 24, 25, when these guys were in the furnace, what did Nebuchadnezzar see? Saw four men, right? Walking around. Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw in the fire? And they said, oh, yeah. He said, it wasn't four. We didn't throw in a few extra guys. How about these, these warriors? Did they fall in? No, no, no. They fell the other way. They didn't fall in. So, so, so they said, no, only three. He says, I see four men walking in the fire. Traditional Christianity says this fourth man was the pre-incarnate Jesus. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego walked with Jesus before Peter. It was, it was even a thought of. They walked with Christ. But notice, they walked with Christ. Did they walk with Christ outside the furnace? You know, it, it, John Ortberg reminds us that sometimes we pray to be delivered from the furnace. But maybe God wants to deliver us in the furnace or through the furnace. And when you're, when, because his plan is a little bit bigger than ours, his plan isn't just for our comfort and convenience. And so when we're there, isn't it interesting that's the only place where the pagan king can see Jesus? The greatest apologetic, and this is all over Scripture, is, is, is not argumentation but it's our being able to live a life of faith in the midst of the furnace. And when these guys are there, the pagan king sees it. When, can you imagine the faith of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego when they got out of that furnace? Can you imagine the stories they would tell over the years? What is it, 2,600 years later? We're still talking about this. Their faith had to go up. Uh, 
exponentially. Talk to an agent, agent saint who's been in the furnace. And you know what they'll tell you? They'll say, I don't want to go back in there. That's a rough place. But the fellowship with my God was incredible. He showed up there. There was intimacy with him there like I never knew. My faith was purified there. Let me, let me ask you, what is it in your own heart right now today that your response, we wouldn't say it, maybe we wouldn't say it out loud, but your response would be with fear and not with faith. Would it be uh, a child that's walked away from the Lord and it just uh, has major anxiety attack issues on you? Maybe the issue is where your child's going to end up. Maybe it is the job situation. Health. We want to take some time in the sanctuary of your own heart, right where you sit, to commit that to him and to his power. So would you take a second to pray with me? And Now listen, here's the deal. Don't fake anything, but we're not... Raising hands, or you're not going to have to say anything on this. It's just between you and God. But what is the number one thing? It would be the anxiety, or the fear, or the painful thing. Would you go ahead and, and, and pray a 16, 17 verse prayer? Lord, I know you're powerful. You're so powerful. You can take care of this. And so this is the way I would like to see you take care of it. Would you do that for me, please? That's not the wrong prayer. But it can't stop there. Verse 18. Tell him, but even if you do not, God, I would want you to release this depression from me. I don't know why I'm so confused. But even if you do not, I'm going to praise you. Lord, thank you for being a God whose power is that which is unfathomable to us. All we can do, other than try to understand it, is sit back amazed when we see pieces of it. Thank you, God, that you're patient with us when we're demonstrating fear and we're walking around with a lack of faith. I pray that for myself and my brothers and sisters here, God, as we go through this world, would you help us to have a healthy, real faith, not living in denial, embracing 16 and 17, God, recognizing your power as much as we can. But remind us, God, of verse 18. May we hold that as well. But even if you do not, we trust your wisdom, God, coupled with your power. And we want that. And we'll follow you with that. And so, God, I would ask that by your Spirit you will have heard those prayers that your children would have prayed to you today. As we go forth this week, will you remind us again and again and again, God, as you have to me all the time, of your power and your ability to handle it. As your children, may we stay in your shadow and not the shadow of the government or shadow of anything else, but in your shadow. Words in your son's name that we pray. Amen.